0: Please uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. What are the three sections of the Heidelberg Catechism all together? Guilt, grace, gratitude, misery, deliverance, gratitude, sin, salvation, service. However you may have memorized it. If you haven't memorized it, you should. The catechism is a uh, biblical document, not in the sense that it is equal with the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, but it is biblical because it follows a biblical pattern, the outline of the book of Romans, sin, salvation, and service. Sin chapters 1 through 3, salvation 3 through 11, service uh, in chapters 12 through 16. Also, catechism is a pedagogical method, a teaching method used by Jesus himself, a question and answer method. So though it is a human document written a few hundred years ago, let no one say that it is not biblical. And it has been tried and found true to the word of God over the course of centuries by the people of God, such as yourselves, who have heard its explanation, who have heard its... uh, 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 Its contents and verified that, in fact, it is consistent with and true to the Word of God. We are in the third section, then. The third section is composed mainly of the Ten Commandments, which is the rule of gratitude. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We love God and show our thankfulness to him for his grace in saving us by Jesus Christ uh, by uh, obeying his commands. And then, The other main portion of the third section of the Catechism is prayer, specifically the Lord's Prayer. As the Catechism says, prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. And we looked at the uh, preface to the Lord's Prayer, and then the first two petitions, Hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come. And today we want to look at the third petition, Thy will be done. So let's read the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. I'll read it uh, together, uh, beginning in verse 7. Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then if you would please turn in the back of the hymnal to Lord's Day 49, it's on page 895. Lord's Day 49, the Catechism's exposition and explanation of this third petition. I'll ask you the question, and would you kindly respond with the answer as printed there. What does the third petition mean? Very good. That's a tall order, isn't it? Without any backtalk. And uh, as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Wow. All right. Three points to this sermon on thy will be done. First of all, the petition's necessity. Secondly, the petition's definition. And thirdly, the petition's application. So necessity, definition, and application. Uh, First of all, the necessity of this petition, Thy will be done. Um, When we looked a few weeks ago at the first petition, Hallowed Be Your Name, I uh, I stated to you that there is a relationship, an interconnection between the three first petitions of the Lord's Prayer. All right. And the connection between the three is that we're praying for God's name to be hallowed, Uh, or glorified. How is God's name going to be hallowed or glorified? It's going to be hallowed or glorified by his kingdom coming. And how is his kingdom going to come? It's going to come when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So this third petition develops and flows from two. And the second and third petition are the means of fulfilling the first petition. I want you to get this. Very important. All right. When we're praying for the kingdom to come, we're not praying for Jesus to come back and get us out of here, all right? Many Christians think that's what we're praying for. No, we're praying for the kingdom to come on earth and his will to be done on earth and for his name to be hallowed and glorified on earth as it is in heaven, all right? So this is not uh, that we could be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. It is specifically uh, rubber-hits-the-road Christianity. It is relevant practical, personal piety, all right, put into practice here, all right. Those petitions are connected to each other as root, stem, and fruit, all right, or as beginning, middle, and end, all right. Ursinus, who is one of the authors of the catechism, said this. This petition, uh, he explains, pray that the kingdom may come, for unless God brings it to pass, that everyone in his own peculiar sphere Diligently does God's will, that kingdom cannot be established, flourish, and be preserved. Isn't that a beautiful explanation, right? Pray that the kingdom may come, for unless God brings it to pass, that everyone in his own peculiar sphere diligently does God's will. That kingdom cannot be established, flourish, and be preserved. That's a beautiful kingdom concept. And notice the blend of divine sovereignty and human responsibility there. They are not pitted against one another. It is not either that God is sovereign or that man is responsible, but it is both and. All right? We're praying that God establishes kingdom, but how is he going to establish it as we perform his will? All right? This puts to shame the nonsense that people talk about when they say that somehow there are Christians that think that they can usher in God's kingdom. Well, that's just folly. Of course not. God must bring his kingdom about. But God does it as he usually does through means. Just as God answers prayers through the means of you and me praying. God uses means, his sovereign Uh, execution of his will is not apart from the means which he uses to accomplish that will he is sovereign we are responsible he does it we perform it it is both and not either or all right what are we praying for here all right that god may be glorified in all the earth and how is that going to be done? By his kingdom coming on earth. And how is his kingdom going to come? By subjects of that kingdom doing his will in their respective callings. This is supremely important, all right? This is an earthly prayer. I want, don't want you to miss that. We're praying for God's name to be hallowed on earth. We're praying for God's kingdom to come on earth. We're praying for God's will to be done on earth. As it is in heaven, all right? So let's look at the definition of this petition. And some of you, I trust, are familiar with this, but some of you are not. Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 29? Deuteronomy 29, which talks there about the will of God. Many Christians, far too many, get confused and tied up in knots, particularly in some segments of the Christian church, with respect to God's will, all right? How can I know God's will? What is God's will for me? Should I go right? Should I go left? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I marry John? Should I marry Jane? I'm, you know, uh, what's God's will, all right? a lot of confusion about this. Well, look at Deuteronomy 29 uh, and verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. This is an aspect of God's decretal will, all right? God's will is his eternal plan composed in eternity before the foundation of the world. The entirety of the history of the universe has been mapped out according to God's will. And notice what uh, we're told here. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that you and I will never know. All right? Why? Because our minds are finite. Because we are human, because we do not, you do not have the capacity to know the infinite consciousness of a divine being. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, that's one aspect of God's will, but read on with me. But, adversely, all right, by contrast, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that are revealed, all right? So the secret will of God or his decrees, what God has purposed to do, and that will is always done. God's will is never thwarted. God's will is always accomplished. God's will is always done. But we do not always know what that is. Why? Because secret things will to unto the Lord. I think it's Isaiah who says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Such thoughts are too high for me. I cannot attain unto it, right? All right. But the things revealed, now there's an aspect of the will of God that is revealed. And what is it that's revealed? His commands, his precepts, his ordinances, the statutes, all the words, all right, that we're told here so that we may uh, do them, all right? This aspect of God's will is what God has commanded to be done by us and contained in the pages of sacred scripture From Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, all right? All right. Now, the secret will of God requires submission, all right? We just have to submit to God's will. I remember the first, one of the first books I read as a baby Christian was A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God. If you ever read that, you might remember the first page in that book, right, where he's talking about the sovereignty of God. He says, have you ever gotten upset about the weather? Do you know who controls the snow and the rain and the wind and the storms and the sun? It knocked me back on my heels. God is in control. But we don't know whether it's going to rain tomorrow. We don't know if it's going to be sunny. We don't know, right? That's the secret. We have to submit to God's will. The second, though, the things revealed requires obedience. Requires doing what God commands. It must be uh, must be intently, intensely. Excuse me, concerned about having your life regulated by God's holy law, by all the things that have been revealed in Scripture. Right now, please get this. All right, the things reveal that aspect of God's will is not vague. It's not mystical alright? It's not amorphous, alright? It is not inventive, it is revealed. Where is God's will found? Right here in the pages of sacred scripture. You want to know God's will? It's right here. How does that answer the questions, pastor, that you asked earlier? Should I, uh, you know, should I go left? Should I go right? Should I marry Joe? Should I marry Jane? Who, what job should I take? Should I take a job in Philadelphia? Should I take a job in Albany? Should I stay in New York? But, But God hasn't revealed that in scripture. Well, I think it was Augustine who said it right. He said, obey God and do whatever you want. Obey God and do whatever you want. That is, God's will is found within the boundaries of his law. All lawful occupations are possible. It is not God's revealed will that you should take a job in Philadelphia or stay in New York. They are equally legitimate. They have to be weighed by other considerations, and we don't have time to talk about all of those things this morning. Simply to say that it is specious when Christians get tied up in knots about what is God's will for me. God's will is revealed. Here, obey that and do whatever you want. Abraham Kuyper, whom some of us know and like, said this. My one desire has been the ruling passion of my life. One high motive has acted like a spur upon my mind and soul. It is this, that in spite of all worldly opposition, God's holy ordinances shall be established again in the home, in the school, and in the state for the good of the people, to carve, as it were, into the conscience of the nation the ordinances of the Lord to which the Bible and creation bear witness, until the nation pays homage again to God. This should be the passion and desire of every born-again Christian. And what you see there, brothers and sisters, is the relationship between individual regeneration and social transformation. All right? There are whole segments of the church today which speak uh, pejoratively and negatively about transforming culture or transforming society. Well, of course, if that were the intent and purpose of the church, all right, that would be mistaken. The church is a ministry of mercy. It's to preach the gospel, all right? It is to extend mercy in the name of Christ. It is not the church's business to transform a business or to transform uh, an apartment building or something like that. However, The kingdom of God which begins in the heart doesn't remain in the heart. It works itself outward like concentric circles of a stone thrown into the water so that it has a ripple effect upon every aspect of life and eventually whole societies are transformed by it. You live in a society that has been transformed By Christianity, I don't want to get into a whole discussion. You can talk over fellowship dinner with me if you want to talk about is America a Christian nation or not. That's not what I'm saying. All right. Simply to say that if you live in the United States of America in the 21st century, you live in a society that has been transformed by Christianity. Do you want to know what a society that is not transformed by Christianity looks like? Ask Sheena. Pakistan is a society that has not been transformed by Christianity. Where if you go to report a crime, as uh, uh, she and his brother did, you will be arrested, and until you bribe the police, you won't get out of jail. Now, having traveled all over the world, this is the norm. Wherever Christianity has not taken root, corruption, deceitfulness, all kinds of things, poverty, You have Hinduism as the national religion of India, and and people are starving, and yet there are bulls roaming the street. That's religious, all right? Whatever you think of America as a Christian nation, pro, con, whatever, and we could discuss that. You are living in a society that has been transformed by Christianity, all right? That's just a fact, Jack, all right? Mm -hmm. The prayer is that earth would be like heaven. Heaven is what it is because the will of God is done by all who dwell there, right? Isn't that what our lesson says? Help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. That's what your life and my life should look like. That's what we're praying here. Okay? All right. What about some application? First of all, Jesus Christ alone perfectly fulfilled this petition. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In chapter 5, he said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the garden of Gethsemane, as he faced the cruel horror of the cross, the sheer ignominy of hanging on that cross and being crucified was nothing compared to the horrors of hell he would have to endure as he bore the sins of his people on that cross. And in anticipation of that, he said, My Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Three times he prayed. He sweat, as it were, drops of blood. You could ask Dr. Williams about hyperhidrosis. Is that the right term, Belinda? Hyperhidrosis. That it's actually possible to sweat drops of blood. So intense was the anticipation of the horrors of hell that he would undergo on the cross. And yet he prayed, Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus Christ willingly, obediently, perfectly fulfilled this petition. Thy will be done, as he offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. In order that you might have your sins forgiven. In order that you might have new life infused into you by his Holy Spirit. In order that you might not only pray, but actually do. Thy will be done. Look at Colossians 3 quickly for some closing points of application here this morning. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3. Catechism says this petition means help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any back talk to obey your will for it alone is good. Well, what is God's will for you? Well, first in the home, look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. These words are God's will for a Christian household. Think about it. How does Jesus Christ make your house different from the fine upstanding citizen who lives next door that's not a Christian? That moral person who lives next door that's not a Christian, goes to work every day, comes home every night, has his family, takes them to the playground, takes them to games, even takes them to the Lego land once in a while. What makes your house different? It's Jesus Christ that makes a Christian home different. And what does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like doing his will. It looks like, looks like husbands that are not harsh with their wives, but treat them royally. Wives who love their husbands, children, who do what their parents say first time fast, just like the angels in heaven. Yeah, look at work, look at verse uh, 22. Most of us, perhaps, is what this uh, applies to. Slaves today we would say workers. All right, let's do a little transit uh, 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 transliteration. All right? We don't have slaves today. We would say employees, okay? Servants, employees. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Look at what Paul says. "You're You're to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. In other words, you're not doing it just when the boss is looking. You know, when I was working construction, we'd be lollygagging around, telling stories, jokes, one thing or the other, and all of a sudden somebody would say, here comes the boss. Oh, better look busy, better look busy. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not Christian. Right? Not people pleasers. I'm not looking to get a promotion. I'm not looking to get a raise. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not my purpose. Look look at what he says. Look at what he says. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Does the fear of God enter into your workplace Monday through Saturday? Does the fear of God govern your work Monday through Saturday? Look, look, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You see, whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're a physician, whether you're a blue-collar worker, whether you're a white-collar worker, whatever it is that you're doing, that is serving the Lord. Please, let's put to death this myth that serving the Lord is only being a preacher or a missionary or a church worker. Right? Mabel knows. You can talk to her about it later. Everyone is serving the Lord. If you're changing diapers, you're serving the Lord. If you're in the domestic sphere, you're serving the Lord. If you're a blue-collar worker digging holes, you're serving the Lord. If you're a corporate worker in a a big office building, 9 to 5, you're serving the Lord. That is kingdom work. That is God's will for you. Ah, how about that, huh? And look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord... You will receive the inheritance as your reward. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? He sweetens the pot, as it were. He doesn't just say, do it! No, he says, there's a reward waiting for you. There's a reward waiting for you. Look at the next sentence. You are serving the Lord Christ. God's will in the workplace, God's will in the home. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak He's talking here about evangelism and missions. Paul was a missionary, right? But look at what he says to the Christian. Look at what he says to the church member. Look at what he says to those who are not missionaries as he was, right? He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Every Christian is a prophet, priest, and king. And in your prophetic office of believer, the prophetic aspect of your office of believer, you are to share the gospel with Jesus Christ. You are to demonstrate by your life, walk in wisdom, and with your lips how you ought to speak. Like two wings of a plane, life and lips, word and deed, showing people Jesus Christ. That's God's will for you. And, of course, as Kuyper pointed out in an earlier citation, and I won't have you turn there, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says there is no authority except that which has been established by God, and he talks about the civil authorities. Remember when Paul is writing to the church at Rome, Nero is the civil authority, right? Nero, in case you didn't know, is lighting Christians on fire as torches for his parties, right? And yet Paul in Romans 13 says he's a servant of God. He's a minister of God. That's why with all this fanfare of Queen Elizabeth's death, right? She was a, seemed to have been a very faithful Christian, right? In England, in their government, they're called ministers of parliament. It's from Romans 13. Civil authorities are ministers, not in the sense of ordained preachers, but as servants of God in the political sphere. God's word has something to say to the political sphere. God's word has something to say to Mayor Adams, to Governor Hochul, to President Biden, to the Senate, to the legislature, to everyone who holds elected office. And by the way, people bled and died so that you could have the right to elect your own representatives. If you don't vote, it's a tragedy for a Christian not to vote. You're a citizen of both kingdoms. Just a little aside. Joseph Aline, who wrote, he's an old Puritan, I think he wrote Alarm to Sleeping Christians, I'm not sure. But anyway, he said this, rightly prayed, This petition would surround the humdrum of life with a glorified radiancy. It would transform this earth into a bit of heaven. And isn't that just what Jesus taught you and me to pray for? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven by us who have been born again into a living hope, who have been transformed from death to life and brought into your glorious kingdom. We desire that your name would be hallowed far and wide, that your kingdom would come far and wide, and that your will would be done far and wide, even as it is in heaven. Grant us grace and the power of your Holy Spirit that that might begin with each one of us. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.